Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from Accra, Ghana. And I'm going to say it again. I'm so blessed, guys. The Harmattan has left the building for the most part. So I think I, you know, all along, if you're a regular listener, I talk about the weather, I talk about what's going on. And apparently the week before I got back, it was one of the worst air quality weeks um, ever. If you know anything about air quality, it was at like 300, which is like the second worst next to major industrial centers. And Accra is not a major industrial city. So the Sahara winds were doing their thing. But thankfully, today we were at about 70, which is great. And hopefully we'll get down to like 40 and then life will be splendid. But I'm happy not to have itchy eyes or stuffy noses and all that great stuff. And so I'm excited for my conversation with my guest today because for so many reasons, but I will start off with her bio and then we can get right into the conversation. She is an award-winning multidisciplinary creative artist and creative consultant with a key focus on visual storytelling and connecting to audiences. She is CEO and founder of Me and You Films, a boutique production company. As a global independent professional creative director, producer, director, writer, filmmaker, and edit producer, her early career and work includes working on award-winning BBC shows like Top Gear, Strictly, Come Dance, and EastEnders 25 Live to the London 2012 Olympic Games, London and New York Fashion Week, and Lenny Kravitz's Strut Tour. Other brands and clients include Endemol, BBC, Tom Ford and Tom Ford Beauty, Gucci, Diane Van Furstenberg, DVF, Kohl's, Farfetch, Lush Cosmetics, Preen, and ITN Productions. Her latest project, Garms, Black Culture's Influence on British Fashion, a one-off documentary deep dive into the world of Black British fashion and culture premieres this week, Wednesday, February 21st. When she's not working with brands and commercial clients, she creates artwork with an African spiritualist theme focused on the female form. Marley Edwards, welcome to the podcast. Wow, thank you. <laughs> that was like really good research. Like, <laughs> wow. Oh, not at all. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, not. I mean, you're worthy, my dear. You're worthy. You have a great resume that precedes you. So let's jump right in. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? So I am from London, London Town, UK. I also spent my childhood back and forth between New York, particularly Brooklyn, and London. I would say I am currently local to London, New York, and Washington, D.C. I'm kind of floating in between all three at the moment. And my craft is very much storytelling and visualization. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so when you say Brooklyn and when you say London, we like to know, we get, you know, we're not going to stalk you. We just want to know a little bit more about your Brooklyn and your London. So tell us a little bit more. <laughs> Yeah, no, of course. I am from Queen's Park, West London originally, which 
has a very heavy Caribbean influence. We have Notting Hill Carnival there, so it's very much part of the carnival. But then I also spent time in Wembley. So I would, you know, I would be in Wembley and I would be, it's a big football stadium and tours and things around there. And then I would spend, I don't know, maybe three to six months every year in Brooklyn around Prospect Park because my parents travel for work and so I would have to end up in school there oh, wow. okay. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so you had a real Brooklyn upbringing to some extent right oh yeah yeah to some extent absolutely yeah back in the 80s and 90s okay nice yeah and that was a that was a very different Brooklyn than the Brooklyn that we live in today <laughs> Very, very different. <laughs> okay, yeah. So um, we can tell you're, you're, you're a Black Brit. And so most Black Brits have some African, Carib- Afro-Caribbean roots. So what, what are your Afro-Caribbean roots? Yeah, so mine are on my mother's side. Uh, my heritage is a Reuben and Dominican, not Dominican Republic, Dominican. And on my father's side, Jamaican, um, my parents are actually Pan-Africanists, mm. so I was raised to call myself an African of Caribbean uh, heritage. So I definitely grew up uh, very, very heavily influenced by my Caribbean culture. Foods in our house was um, always Caribbean food. And generally in London, there's a strong Jamaican presence culturally, which permeates everywhere. And then also around uh, many West African friends, particularly Ghanaian and Nigerians. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. So a young lady who's spending time in Brooklyn and in London somehow finds herself in this inspired storytelling space. So so tell us more about your journey to becoming a storyteller, especially coming from, you know, we know our traditional family cultures are like creative. What? Huh? (laughs) So tell us, tell us how, how, how did you become the storyteller that you are today? Yeah, I think a lot of it is to do with uh, my upbringing. I think I was quite privileged to grow up in a time when there was a lot of investment in local community arts. And um, so my parents put me in everything. You know, I was in tap dance from very young, you know, poetry classes. I was in African studies. I was in Kung Fu. We used to go to the theatre often. We used to go to watch dance shows often. So that definitely that privilege of being able to access art scenes that isn't always available to most communities and not um, to any communities that are intentionally disadvantaged really helped but I think it was always in me if I'm honest I never ever saw myself doing anything else Mm, wow no I never had a job outside of this like I have always done this so I always from age seven I did a play for all my family that I wrote based on based on racism yeah so storytelling was always a big part of me my my father used to work a lot in the community and he would fly in artists like um the poet laureate miss lou from jamaica so i you know so i would 
you know, sit on Miss Lou's lap and she would tell stories of Nancy the Spider and other poetry. Um, so I very much um, started to create my own work from very, very young and was encouraged to do so. Don't get me wrong, my parents still made me study. To just, like, my grades had to be up. <laughs> There'd be no playing around right. without the grades up. But luckily for them, I was a SWAT and a nurse. So, um, <laughs> so the extra studies came along with the territory anyway because I enjoyed yes. it. But yeah, so then I was in stage school, um, quite a well-known stage school here. Spent some time there honing my craft. Um, I really wanted to be an on-stage actor, actually, actress. And so I spent some time there honing my craft and really continued that through my traditional studies. And beyond, really, I ended up doing a degree in performing arts where I became a theatre practitioner and a theatre advisor. So I would write short plays and put them on and tour them in schools. So I was able to uh, devise theatre, put on plays locally. And through that, through really just always creating work, I decided to give back and create some arts healing um, places straight out of university. So I did that in alongside with like a government initiative. Mm -hmm. mm, tell us more. Oh, so there was this really big government's initiative called Connections at the time, and it was the early 2000s. So in my final year of my um, arts degree, I trained to be what they would term as a key worker. So I trained to actually work with young disadvantaged youths, young people that were at risk of prison or who were going through the criminal system, young people that came from very disadvantaged purposeful communities and created arts programs that would give them job opportunities alongside with educating them from what they would call need to eat, so not in education, employment or training into education, employment or training. And we created dance programs, we got local MCs down, we got local DJs to teach them how to DJ, we got young people into beauty crafts, got them, you know, to get their GCSEs or their high school diplomas and supported them as well through criminal justice system as well, Character references. So really using arts in a way to transform communities, to heal communities, to empower the individual. And I think it's really um, something that I didn't touch upon previously, but being raised by Pan-Africanists, I had an African spiritual practice upbringing. And a big part of that is visualization, is, you know, a higher power that lives in within you and being able to tap into that power through visualizing and meditation. And so it was really important to get these young people to be able to see a future for themselves in order to be able to believe it and achieve it. And being able to do it through an arts setting really can provide an opportunity for you to be able to visualize outside of yourself. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah, and I think that that's really what a lot of young people tapped into and um, definitely something that's been a theme throughout my life. I've been able to visualize myself in these spaces 
throughout my career and then have them manifest in the real world. Right, right, right. I love that you, you know, the comment on how recognizing that, you know, and it's true when you don't see yourself in a certain space, you you will probably never get there. And so using the creative arts and actually seeing themselves either through their works or in the actual works is, is so transformational for young people to to change the, the whole narrative for themselves. Yes. And especially when you, we don't have, you know, many people that are black or, you know, of a working class or come from a disadvantaged background um, in those spaces. It's so vital to give people an opportunity to be able to see, oh, I can fit in there. Sometimes, and that's just through you living your life, you know, through doing what you're doing. But, you know, I grew up uh, very close to the BBC. And I ended up, you know, my first media jobs ended up being in the BBC. But nobody ever, ever told me within my school or anything like that, that that was even possible to work for one of the world's biggest television institutions that was 20 minutes up the road from mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and so it's. So it's even more important. Yeah, I think it's a theme that has carried on through my work, whether it's for self-empowerment or empowering others, but being able to see yourself in certain spaces is really vital to achieving it. Definitely, definitely. So that's a good entryway into my next question, which is why the where? So how did you come to be living, working and playing between New York, London and D.C.? <laughs> yeah, that is such a good question. Um, so maybe I visualized it, yeah. but I didn't remember. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I spent um, years working at the BBC, really honing my storytelling craft for a different medium. And it was during the time that I was at BBC and I was freelancing. It had come to the point that after five years, it was time to move on. And there was a space before me moving on to Endemol where a friend and a colleague from the BBC had actually gone to New York and met some people that work in fashion. And they were coming to London and they were looking for someone to work on an event. And he put me forward. And I met with this New York-based company and worked with them and just really clicked. And it was a really cool fashion event. And then they came back and um, they said that they were doing a runway show. And uh, would I like to be a part of it? And I was like, absolutely. And I received the call sheet and it was for Tom Ford. And Tom Ford is based in London. But through that production company, you have a London arm and a US arm. Um, I was able to work on Paris Fashion Week and New York Fashion Week. Um, So I spent my childhood between London and New York, had a bit of a break. And as so happens, uh, the universe brought me back kind of full circle as to living and working between those spaces. And it's really been through, you know, 10 to 15 years of building up community and a professional community as well that I have been able to 
operate between uh, predominantly London and New York, and then Washington, D.C., I have family there. So uh, I have family in New York and London too, but D.C. is very much going there to be with family and be around people I haven't been able to see for years, especially due to the pandemic and other reasons. Right. Right, right, yeah. And then, you know, as I don't know if they're aging family or not, but uh, that theme has been coming up quite a bit for me lately. And the idea that, you know, we, we have this occasions where we say, you know, we're going to see people twice a year. Like I see, I was watching something and a gentleman said, Oh, I see my mom twice a year. And he was sending her flowers. And he realized when talking to someone who was kind of lamenting the loss of a loved one, the mother didn't live far enough for him not to see her more times. You know, especially when you, when you, when you're getting, as our parents age and things like that, if you're, you know, say your parent is 75 and maybe they're going to live to 80, you're seeing them twice a year. You're only going to see them 10 more times. So it's really that reality that Take the, if you want, I mean, obviously, sure, there's FaceTimes and Zooms and all those things, but the physical presence of being with those people, we have to make deliberate efforts. Absolutely. And I think that's very much for, was it for me. You know, I had a couple of family members that were stateside during the pandemic who passed and I wasn't able mm-hmm. to be with them. Mm-hmm. And it was also a real realization that there were certain older women that were aunts, great aunts, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more wow. of my great aunts along that um, generation who I didn't realize that actually were really good friends of mine. They were my great aunts, but they were actually mm. really good friends of mine. And I could really speak to about yeah. anything. And yeah, having losing them or, you know, some of my even uncles, who perhaps I wouldn't speak to quite so much, but would always be there. Yeah, Definitely having that realization and also just, you know, wanting to ensure that the time spent here for all of us is with people that uplift me, mm-hmm. you know, uplift mm-hmm. my vibrations and are definitely supportive and encouraging and give me the energy to keep going. You know, that's so vital. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think this is a good time. I was going to save it for later to ask you about this, but, but let's talk about your, when you're not doing the commercial work, cause we'll get back to that. Cause that's key for the conversation, but the artwork and that the spiritual themes and, and working on the female form. Can you tell us more about some of, some of the creative artwork that you're, you're working on and have worked on over the years? Yeah, so I really like to have a look at artwork in a moving form. I find that often when we speak about artwork, it's uh, very static and 2D. And I consider dance, fashion, movement or forms of artwork. And so for me, definitely my artwork is very much, any work that I'm making much more on a personal level is very much about uh, black uh, woman representation. And often the beauty, the, the beauty and sometimes the sadness, the, the duality that comes out of that experience. I love making definitely the types of artwork where it's not always dialogue heavy. It's very much uh, visualization heavy. So again, my artwork is 
for myself, but then also for others, in order for us to be able to see ourselves in different forms of expressionism, in order for us to be able to see ourselves in different forms of spaces. I feel like there's such limits on black women, and there's so many limits, especially on our mental state of what we can achieve or what we should be doing, or what spaces are for us. And I think there's a real reclamation. I mean, I think if you look at certain things like even Beyonce is come doing, you know, house music, country rock, and the things that are typically people wouldn't see as black, but these are our things. There's a reclamation of it. And I think because I'm such a keen anthropologist, my own time. I'm very aware of that, but I don't think, I didn't think I realised how much other people weren't aware of it. And so it's, it's definitely always work through a form of education, I suppose, but not an education where it is completely obvious, but an education where it sparks enough thought, where you go within, where you can start to see yourself. Well, what if I did that? What if I did that? What? Why? Why would I not be in that space? Or how can I take up space in these areas? Because I think so much of your mindset is really what governs so much of your life. And it's definitely in those times that I have doubted myself that I haven't been able to achieve and do as much as I know I'm capable of. And it's really through talking to other colleagues and they've seen me exist in other spaces. And they will say things like, oh, you're really okay with just, you know, being full on black <laughs> in a very white <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah. What yeah. else am I gonna be? But you know, there's so many people that are actually pulling themselves down and not being that in the space, in those spaces. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for me, my artwork is very much about empowering Black women who being able to see ourselves in different situations and definitely forms of beauty. I think that's my biggest thing. Like, I think if you can see yourself as beautiful, you can visualize yourself as beautiful for you, then you can start to create the kind of life that you want to live. Um, Yeah, it's so, um, that's, yeah, very, very key. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, for for you listeners, this is going to be in the show notes. You'll have a link. But as I'm speaking to Marley and I'm thinking about her Vimeo account, this artwork is there. And now it it makes so much more sense to me now having this conversation with you. It's like, ah, this is these short stories, these vignettes of of history. And, And as you say, anthropology around, you know, the Black Black lives lived and particularly Black women's lives lived. So, yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah, that was really succinctly put. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what I was trying to say in a roundabout way. But um, uh, <laughs> no, you, you, you're fine. You're fine. It was great. <laughs> okay, so, so let's talk about the fast forwarding, not fast forwarding, but kind of bringing us back to what's present in your in your space, and also kind of the journey of being a creative and making a living, right? So, so how now you've decided you're creative, and we we know that. When you can work at institutions, it's great because that's a steady paycheck. You can always do that. But when you're an independent producer, how do you strategize to be able to be in this as a business? 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it helps because I learned the business, and I would say that mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of creatives that don't take that time to learn. And I learned the business, and I came up. You know, I really did come up through the banks. There was no um, shortcut or fast forward mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And so, because I now know the business and live and breathe the business I'm able to strategize in different ways and it's always a challenge like you know we've had you know the UK just entered its second recession you know yeah officially right as of this week right (laughs) exactly (laughs) so that's two in my lifetime that's so the last one was in 2008 the bank crashed then we also had a pandemic and now we're also coming off the back Mm -hmm. of the hollywood uh writer and actor strikes you know the strike right right so you know i've seen all of these dips happen and i really do think it's a case of i you know it's really important to me my wellness and my meditation and my qigong and my yoga and all these um, spiritual sciences and practices that I employ to do this thing called life. And they, during this business, it's also provided me an opportunity to teach others. So I've been able to work with Soho House on wellness for creatives and um, deliver qigong and events and things um, for them. But I think also through networking, again, and building a community has allowed me to sustain myself in this business, understanding that it's people and people will always want stories and people always need to be documented and reflected as culture and society shifts. But it's also about making those genuine connections with people. And so for me... That's how I am moving through this landscape. I am continuing to make connections with other people, really hold uh, fast my values and my ethics because I feel like those can quickly go out the wayside trying to go through this industry. You know, there's a lot of, exactly, a lot of competitive of people wanting to not be as authentic as well within their stories and uh, within the space that they take up within the industry or hopping on trends because I've seen those come and go over 20-something years in television alone. And really making sure I stay focused on the stories that I want to tell and the people that I want to represent. You know, I mentioned previously about the writer strike and it was a very, very tough year, particularly in the UK, within my industry because the UK very much almost exists as a big extended production company for Hollywood. So not an awful lot of money is raised here within the UK. So the writer strikes had a huge effect. Like I had uh, one production because we had so many people attached to Hollywood on it that was cancelled. And the irony being that, you know, I ended up being working a lot last year because um, I... Um, 
black and <laughs> have a background in fashion. And that is pretty much the honest truth by holding fast to wanting to have black stories and being into the visualization, the aesthetics of what that is and not necessarily always putting it down to fluff, but understanding the importance of being able to see yourself has actually provided me with more opportunities than some of uh, my peers. And so, as you mentioned in your opening, I was working on a documentary for BET UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's not sidetrack it. Let's talk all about it. So tell us, tell us, how did that project come about? Garms, tell us, tell us the story. Yeah, so Garms is um, Black culture's influence on British fashion. And it came about, um, I have to say, it wasn't through my production company, it's through another production company. And I hadn't, and uh, BET were working with a commissioner at BET, Cecilia Dean was working with this production company. And I um, hadn't even heard about it, actually. Uh, but I think my name had kept on coming up, um, as in, I don't, I don't really know of anyone else that works across television and fashion, let alone anyone else black. So I think my name kept on coming up for that. So they called me up uh, and straight away I was like, yep, 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 yep. I'm involved, I'm on board. Um, but there was no story there. There was nothing really there. So the whole production beginning to end was like less than three months and a good six weeks of that was edit time so we really I really wrote and we filmed this within six weeks we wrote film casted everything six weeks around fashion week really within three and a half weeks if I'm being honest and so um I started very very quickly so I started to research Uh, I had some background in fashion doing runway for 10 years there were some black British designers I was aware of like Martine Rose who had mutual friends and Bianca Saunders because she is quite well known in menswear and also dressed Usher for the Met Gala last year so her name had come up quite a But I started to have a look in the history of migration of uh, people from the Caribbean and West Africa, particularly in the 40s to the 60s, and what changes happened in the fashion landscape. And it was just fascinating to anthropologically find what changes had happened over the landscape, and then to find the people like Bianca Saunders, Martine Rose, Fode Dambaya from Labrum, who are of Caribbean and West Africa descent and really at the forefront of British fashion today and so yeah Garms came about through a need of really needing to tell these stories not to make it I think initially you know the channel were thinking there's not as much history here maybe they're thinking it's a bit of just street fashion but being able to show that the seamstresses the tailors from the prints so much of it is black culture's influence through the prints you know we found out there's an amazing trinidadian woman called althea mcnish fine artist and liberty uh which is a british heritage um shop and uh print uh, textile um store here in london they 
really can attribute color in their prints to her. They took her prints and, yeah, started to make material out of it so people can make dresses. So we have direct links to really uh, changing British fashion and style. And we were able to look at also cultural icons through music. So lots of British musicians and how through their clothing has changed everything. And I'm just really, really excited about it. I'm really excited to show the world. I think it's something that everybody of the African diaspora can be very proud of, to see our influence and how far we can go. I think there's a part two to be had. There's so many more people. I feel like we could have made a feature out of it. You know, there are a couple of people we couldn't even feature. There's a young designer called Tolly Coca, who's amazing. She's also from West London. Please park where I'm from. She just had a show last night in London Fashion Week, and it's the most amazing mashup between English heritage and West African culture. It's just everything's gorgeous. Same with Labrum, amazing Sierra Leonean designer, British, who won the Queen Elizabeth award for British design last year. He was pictured with King Charles everywhere and went quite viral because he has clothes that say designed by an immigrant. Uh, he weaves his heritage into everything. He's got like this gorgeous print or this gorgeous like embroidered heavy material that is cowrie shells all throughout. Yeah, oh, it's just... Um, divine and so yeah Garms is a real kind of exploration of what we've brought over with us and how we've influenced this landscape but how much we're leading in the fashion landscape today nice nice yeah. so you're you're in london now and it is fashion london fashion week now Yes, yes. Okay, so that's that's very exciting. And so it's just the start of it, but in your you, you mentioned influence in the landscape of fashion weeks of the recent past. Have have you really seen an evolution of the the featuring of of the Ford Ford fashions of African and Afro-Caribbean designers? And and is that translating into actual sales for them? Well, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of them have already been there. Yeah, and I think really we're just shining a light on them. Like Marty Rose is, you know, menswear designer, but her Jamaican heritage has always been very, very obvious through all of her pieces and all of her work. And then, you know, there's other things that perhaps you wouldn't realise with Bianca Saunders, where it looks like, you know, traditional British tailoring, but she'll actually take the type of tailoring of when Caribbean people, especially Jamaican people, came over in Windrush. And that kind of like Sunday church mm, kind of tailoring nice. that is mm-hmm. now coming mm-hmm. back. Quality, yeah, so quality. Exactly. <laughs> the preciseness, the quality. And I think that's what it is. I That's what I'm finding. We didn't get to feature somebody, but we found a, a designer that also does a five-piece suit. And so he does Chiritao Ejiofor and Skepta. And yeah, and his stuff is amazing because the quality and the craftsmanship, and he's of Nigerian heritage, and it's 
you know, it was so important to us and still is, but it was so important to our parents and our grandparents to have pride to present ourselves in a certain way. So really our techniques are quite exquisite and you know, we were supplying as well and doing half the plays for half the world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then everywhere in West Africa, somebody's got a tailor that you go to, you just bring your material and like all across most of the continent, let's be honest, you know, and then in the Caribbean, everyone's got like a grandma or great aunt or somebody who, you know, has all your clothes. So you're definitely seeing it come through the grandchildren. You're definitely seeing them hold on to that. You know, we had somebody whose grandparents, every Sunday regardless, they dressed up even if they were in the house, you know, full on suit. Wow, interesting. Yeah. My grandmother the same. My grandmother tailored all my school uniform. She made all my school uniform and we'd have a party because she bought a new sofa and we all have to go dressed up. And that would every year, like genuinely, she buys a new sofa or she bought some plates and she'd call you up and say she's having a party because she bought some plates and we'd all get dressed up and go around to her um, apartment. So you're definitely seeing more of that, definitely seeing that in Labram, seeing there are other artists like Priya Alawalia who uses African and Asian prints. Um, she's of uh, mixed African and Asian heritage and you can see that both in the room. You've got Nicholas Daly who his Jamaican heritage comes through a lot of his clothes in terms of colours. Yeah, yeah, definitely seeing the pride. Yeah, there's, and there's a lot, there's so much to learn. Like everyone you're saying, I'm so out of the loop. I'm so looking forward to watching the special and just doing the research because, I mean, we obviously have so much creativity. And, and to your point, we have really designed so much of what fashion is exactly. and we just don't get the credit because of the colonization of it and it's like do we decolonize fashion or no actually do we just claim it like you said the reclaiming yeah and claiming what is always ours and i'm claiming with receipts like we've done the research we you know we've traced the lines and i really feel like you'll be able to see that in garms like it's it's a celebration of all that we've done and it's a I think it's an education. I think most of us don't know and don't realize. And we kind of know in a kind of grand scheme of things that like, yeah, we're black, we influence everything, everyone copies us. We know that. But being able to actually document it and show the line and the journey of how we got to here. um, Yeah, I don't think you're alone in not knowing all these people. I think, you know, Many people don't realise. You know, Martin Rose has got her own Nike shoe. LeBron's got his own Adidas. You know, like we we interviewed a young man called Cortez, who runs a, well, a young man called Clint, who has his own company called Cortez Streetwear Brand, and he employs everyone from his local area. Yeah, even the some of the parents, even some of the people that are making the clothes, and they're the parents of the young people that work in the warehouse. Wow. Yeah, wow. That's wow. So wow. This is, yeah, this is, I'm so looking forward to it. This is so awesome. And so before we talk about what's next for you, as you're moving into this big high, high point right now, let's talk about mindset. 
So I want to talk about your mindset hack. So what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? One that you practice, one that you know of, one that you can imagine? Yeah, I think for me, it is nearly always meditation and qigong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I and I found for speaking to people, you know, a lot, a lot of people say it's challenging to meditate. And I really think it's because many of us are not taught how to meditate. Very, very specific on deep breath. So very, very specific on the type of breathing pattern, which I find if I don't have time to meditate, if I'm in a certain situation and I need to get my mindset quickly under control, there's an amazing technique called the 478 technique. You breathe in. Yeah. Or, you know, half mm-hmm. a set. Yeah. And that Dr. Andrew Wild thing is really great for soothing my nervous system. But I guess the biggest, yeah, the biggest thing for me is the consistency in meditation and qigong. Is the, mm-hmm. visu- is the visualization. Is mm-hmm. doing the visualization, really enjoying myself, really, you know, in the visualization, I'm not going to get it. I have it. I'm living it. You know, mm. I'm living it as it's happened right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And that helps me become more present. That helps me become much more at peace, less worried, less from a place of lack. So I'm not always striving for something. When you're visualizing your abundant and you know that these things come to you, you're less competitive, less stressed. So in order, yeah, for me, a sat down meditation, but a moving meditation like Qigong, um, and while I'm doing it, very much visualization, visualizing my goal. Nice. So, so tell us how, how both of those I love and both of those I, I do regularly. How did you find Qigong? So I came across Qigong because it was part of my upbringing, part of this Pan-Africanist upbringing um, included veganism and Chinese traditional medicine and lots of healing techniques. And so I grew up practicing practice in it not as much as meditation mm, but that was then, first. Mm, okay yeah yeah definitely first uh there was kung fu there's lots of martial arts mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. uh stereotypical jamaican dad we watched a lot of kung fu movies <laughs> together uh, um, i happen to love kung fu movies because of that yeah and then all of us girls were put into kung fu Mm-hmm. Um, so from very young like three four like you know basic self-defense yeah yeah then my dad was studying to be a homeopath mm-hmm. uh, has been a homeopath and acupuncturist and a qigong master for 30 years oh wow okay but it's always been around me i've grown up uh, around quite a few uh black people who practice qigong sure wow uh, I think um, all the weirdos know each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Across seas. Something like that. <laughs> then, um, so, yeah, but I really about, I want to say 2017, started to really take it very seriously and started to study a lot more. Study, I think it came as part of wanting to delve deeper into spiritual sciences and also wanting to know how I could look after myself 
on this lifestyle of being a local girl mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. London, New York and everywhere else. Yeah. Um, and Qigong is just great healing and meditation practice that also you don't need a mat for. Right. Yeah. It's really just some space and the, so beneficial to me that I realized that lots of people just kept on asking me about it and it probably be beneficial to them. And so I started in the pandemic doing Qigong and yoga for free for creatives over Zoom and also in outside spaces. And then once we got to, you know, be able to go outside, I started working with Soho House. Ah, okay. Got it. Got it. To- Nice, yeah. nice. So, so it's always so it's a roots thing, but I mean, I, I I hear you absolutely on the the wellness and the the grounding, and yeah, it's absolutely a mindset hack. Yeah, it's really a mindset hack, and it was really thought from. I think some of these things I take for I took for granted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all my life, but then seeing the effects on other people when they did it with me mm-hmm. really opened up my eyes as to how beneficial it was. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, there were a couple of uh, people say to me, you're really selfish for keeping these things to yourself. (laughs) Like, I'm literally just thinking that I am just living my life. I'm I'm not a very preachy person. I'm not going to tell you all the stuff. So I am genuinely just thinking I'm living my life. And yet, here I am. And yeah, it really came out of, other people wanting to know about it, which really helped me delve deeper in. Sure, sure. Yeah. It's it's sometimes like our gifts are such a mystery to us until they're revealed by reflecting them back on us. Yes, very, very true. Mm -hmm. Very Mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. I would say nearly always the case. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. So what's, what's next and new for you, Marley. What's 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 next? What's well, immediate next is the rest of London Fashion Week. Uh, we have a launch uh, on Monday for a premiere for Garms, and then I am also working. I'm still writing and working with one of my producers to work on some black women's stories. Um, some that's documentary based on real lives and others um, that are fictional. So I'm currently in a writing and creating space uh, and wrapping up fashion week. And as I go on, it's really more creating stories that are for us and by us and continuing on with wellness Uh, I used to see them as two separate things, but I think especially for black women, all black people, all marginalized people, it's so important that we actually make our mindset the number one thing, our health, our mental health and our physical health, 
the number one thing that we work on. It really is the foundation in order for us to be able to achieve everything else and move through this world. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. I, I, I really wholeheartedly believe that. So thank you for, for putting an effort in that and doing that work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so you're very welcome. I hope to do more. So I am, you know, currently finishing writing a book on spiritual sciences and how we can incorporate them into our everyday lives. And yeah, I hope to be able to roll that out at some point towards the end of the year in order to share a lot of what I've learned. And a lot of what I've been studying over the years and a lot of quantum physics and all the other stuff that can really tie into our everyday lives so we can live much better. And um, I have my own production company. We were able to do the Black Excellence Awards last year for Powerlist, which was really great. Edward Enenfeld, the British Vogue chief officer, is, yeah, he was number one recipient and we have some great footage from other winners like Adra Ando, who played Lady Danbury on Bridgerton, mm-hmm. and David um, Harewood, and Oswald Butting, who is an amazing Black British uh, designer yeah. as well. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, just finishing up those projects and uh, seeing. And open to new ones, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. So we talked all about you as the, you know, the worker that is Marley and a little bit about, you know, how you kind of put them all together in wellness. But I always like to ask just as a who you are when you're not working and doing all those important busy things that we do to make money and to express our craft. <laughs> and so I like to ask if you're a reader, a watcher or a listener. And what are some of your favorite reads, watches or listens? Oh, I'm all of those things. I'm an mm-hmm. avid music lover. I love, love the music. I listen to a lot of it. I might be in the minority of people who love Andre 3000's latest album. Oh, um, you, you and me both. <laughs> I, saw, I, I saw him perform in Brooklyn. Uh, did you? Oh, amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. I wish I Ah, Yes, I love it. It's very meditative. I really love quite a few British artists. There's an artist called Clear Soul. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love her. Um, Shingy, Shingy Sonora, um, mm-hmm. Sampha. Yeah. Yeah. I lo- yeah, there's some really great black artists that I listen to that are doing great work at the moment. Watching it, believe it or not, despite my industry, I don't actually watch as many things. (laughs) Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't watch as many things. I was, I was spending a lot of time watching documentaries on like black music Mm -hmm. and things like that. I did just finish watching One Day on Netflix because it was a book when I was at university and it was a huge bestseller Mm. and that was really cool to see. But to be honest with you, I tend to go to screenings of a lot of black films that come out generally in the UK. And my friend also has an amazing series called Dreaming Whilst Black. And it is, his name's Johnny Salmon. And he stars in it, he wrote it, 
And yeah, I knew him from very conception of it. And to see him go so far, I think he won an Emmy for the pilot. And it shows on Showtime in the States. And they've just been commissioned for a series too. That's really great. And there was another great Black British series called Champion um, based on uh, British Jamaicans. It was really great on BBC. Uh, I think it's on on Netflix now. Yes, I think it might be on Netflix now. I think it might. Definitely check that out. Mm -hmm. Such a great series. Um, So, yeah. And then my books. My books are very much... I read a lot of books on healing. (laughs) On healing. (laughs) Planets. Um, all that. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. That's a good list, folks. This is going to be in the show notes again. We'll have really rich show notes time, as always, but definitely now because you'll hear all about and see all the fashion, fashion personalities, and all those things. And so, Marley, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think you are my first official on the road, on the road. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking. I was like, he's rushing off the next week it's going to be so awesome but thank you so 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 much thank you for having me yeah before we sign off do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share with the audience um yeah well first of all thank you so much for having me and it's so important um your show and creating such a platform is really great and inspirational i think my final notes are you know really look after your mindset um Mm. you know it's really the greatest tool for transformation that we have Mm -hmm. and if you put slowing down your nervous system meditating being at peace above all things you'll be able to visualize great things and watch those great things flow to you and so i wish that for all your listeners and lots of healing thank you yes 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 thank you all right listeners this has been another episode of the podcast you can catch us tuesdays with new episodes at globalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcast please like share subscribe tell a friend leave us the review we're looking for 124 we're getting we're getting closer guys getting closer thank you for hearing the call and until next time bye for now